Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Well, again, friends, good morning and welcome to worship with us here at Eastside. It's a joy and it is a privilege to be gathered with you, even in this digital space. We're gracious for the technology that allows you to be where you are and me to be where I am, but for us to still be connected across space and across time. And one of the ways that we're seeking to continue to be connected across space and time is to ask that each and every one of you who are, who are experiencing this worship service either now as we live stream or later in the week, we ask that you would take a minute and fill out our online check-in form. If you're a guest, this gives us a chance to welcome you to the community and for our regular attenders and members, this helps us to stay connected with you all and allows you a chance to connect with us. So please take a minute and do that. Well, as we just observed this morning, brings us to the third Sunday in the holy season of Advent. And this year, 2020, the year of years in some ways, we have been approaching this Advent season through the lens of, of, of the everyday mystic and have been experiencing these Sundays looking at some of these ancient characters and asking what is it that they teach us, you and I, as Christians, people seeking the divine in the world today, about how we can practice and experience our faith, tradition, and our lives with God in our homes, in our workplaces, as we are continuing to be physically distanced, as we're seeking to oversee our children while they're doing digital learning, and we're not gathered in the traditional space of the sanctuary week in and week out. We're not gathering in homes for core group, for small group. What does it look like for us to have this personal, mystical interaction and awareness of the divine in our lives day in and day out, hour by hour, in spaces that we normally call ordinary. Where, how does God make them become sacred? This morning we come to two rather important characters in the, the story of Christmas, Mary and Joseph, and this morning, we're going to actually be looking at their backstories. We're going to be looking at the, 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 the narrative before the, the Christmas Eve and Christmas Day celebrations to kind of see how they get set up for us, for the readers. How do we encounter them before? And in order to do this, I have to do something that's a little bit out of character for me. I'm going to actually be reading from, from two different Gospels because Joseph's story is contained in one and Mary's is contained in another. And there's something powerful about reading the two side by side for the way that we're approaching them on this morning. So we're going to be reading first of Mary's, of Mary's story from Luke's Gospel, then we'll move on to Joseph and Matthew. So friends, as I read, I invite you to listen for the word of God. Luke writes, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged 
to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But Mary was much perplexed by the angel's words, and she pondered what sort of greeting might this be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to Gabriel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month, month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. Then moving to Matthew's gospel, Matthew writes of Joseph, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when Joseph had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. The child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You are to name him Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the prophet had spoken. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Loving and gracious God, I ask on this morning that these words that I have prepared might be your word for your people in this time. I pray, God, that you would speak through them, and as where and necessary, speak in spite of me. And I ask, God, that as I preach them, the words of my mouth and the collective meditations across space and time, all of our hearts gathered together, that they would indeed be good, be a resounding, be a resounding sense of joy 
as we enter into this holy season of reflecting on your mystery among us. I ask all this in the name of Christ the Messiah. Amen. Well, I think it would be an interesting study to figure out or to try to discern within the human race when it was that human beings moved from kind of being happy with knowledge of the present, you know, present moment. I I know what's in front of me. I know what's happening right now. I know that I have food in my belly and food for the next meal. When we developmentally or as a collective began to move from that sort of sort of conscious present-centeredness to craving knowledge of tomorrow and the knowledge of the day after and knowledge of the day after that and the year after that and further and further and further into the future. When did our human race begin craving this sight, this knowledge, this information, not about what is right now, but about what is yet to come? I think it's a fascinating question, especially given the context of 2020, because I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one in the digital space right now who has spent just a little bit of time wandering around the corner, thinking around tomorrow, wondering what next month is going to look like, what the next quarter is going to look like, what January might bring. I doubt I'm the only one in the digital room who has done a little bit of this, asking what is next, what is to come? What are people predicting that are smarter than me? What should I expect? What shouldn't I expect? What is being forecasted? So much going on in the world and we're left in this sort of place as humans trying to wrap our minds around not only just what is right now, But we're also always trying to climb and to claw and to force our way and to see what is to come. And it's kind of been fascinating. I don't know if you've noticed this, but but within the last week, as they've been talking about, as we've been getting closer and closer and closer to the vaccine, the way that, that even kind of across different news sources and persuasions, there there's this sense that people are trying to kind of set expectations, right? And they're not trying to promise too much too quick because they don't want some turn of events to then mean that they've got to sort of yank it back out of the expectation of the people. So folks have been sort of inching closer and closer to what the vaccine might mean. And and maybe we'll offer some kind of a, a projected timeline and then who gets it first and what about this and... But lots of careful, contingent, what if, maybe, possibly language around the vaccine because we all know the way that our expectations play into our experience of reality. A year like 2020, possibly more than any time in my lifetime at least, it has created this sort of sort of invaluable desire for knowledge for sort of the prophetic among us. What is to come? What is the future? Can you give us a little sense of around the corner? What is next? Because if you're anything like, like me, 
You want to be able to appropriately plan. You want to prepare for whatever. You want to be at the front edge of planning for tomorrow and the day after in the future. You, you want to know so that you can properly prepare. But the truth is, we have all the various degrees this year been sort of forcibly enrolled in the school of 2020 and what I call sort of epistemological agnosticism. Most of the time agnosticism gets applied to one's belief or disbelief in the divine. That's not how I'm using the word at all here. Epistemological, epistemology, it's kind of a fancy word for the, the nature of knowing, the nature of knowledge. What do we know? What can we know? How do we know that we know what we know? Epistemology, knowledge, and agnosticism, sort of the, the acceptance or the admonition that, that you're not stating something about the unknown, you're just stating that something is in a state of unknown. I don't know. And I don't know that I can or can't know. Agnosticism, remaining sort of in a state of question mark towards another reality. Epi epistemic agnosticism. This year's kind of pushed all of us into this place of saying and getting a lot more comfortable saying about tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. I, I, don't, I don't know. I can't know. Heck, the experts don't seem like they know what's going on or what's to come or what is around the corner. But as the saying goes, knowledge is power. Epistemic certainty, not epistemic agnosticism. Epistemic sureness, solidity. Knowledge is power and especially predictive knowledge about what is to come, about what is around the corner in the future. And I begin here this morning because I think it's an important spot for us to be in our sort of 21st century situatedness as we sort of grapple with and wrestle with 2020 and how intense of a year and the way that this pandemic has forced so many of us into sort of places of forced growth or forced trauma or forced just relative discomfort and dis-ease and just lack of sureness about much of anything. 2020 has pushed the modern world to the breaking point of its surety, of its knowledge, of its epistemology. We've all become a little bit more agnostic about tomorrow, right? Because life has sort of taught us that we can't just know. Most of us are not virologists. Most of us don't work at the CDC, the World Health Organization. And the backstories of our two characters this morning, Mary and Joseph, and you, if you put them up against sort of our modern struggle with what we're experiencing and place them in their space, the contrast is really quite remarkable. And they really begin to challenge us in what we think we should know and what we feel like we don't know. 
Because the story of Mary and Joseph, for both of them, whether we're reading in Luke or in Matthew, these backstories, they both begin with these characters in the dark. They're in the, the dark, cavernous reality of night. Both Mary and Joseph in these stories, they find themselves in the dark. Mary and Joseph, think about it, this Jewish couple, right? All we know about them really is that they're from Nazareth and that they're young, probably in their, Mary's probably in her earlier teens and Joseph's probably in his later and they're engaged to be married. And most likely they're looking forward to, to, to the life that they have in front of them, to, to, to starting a family together. But here's the thing about their situation of being born into the world in which they were born into. They would have had a really stable and reasonable sense shared between the two of them culturally and tribally of what was generally going to be coming in their lives. They could have written a pretty good prediction of like, this is kind of probably how our life is going to work itself out together. Because they knew. They knew their social caste. They knew sort of the socioeconomic reality into which they were born, and it wasn't that common for people to go up or down in that time and in that culture. They knew their economic projections because they knew what their parents did for a living. They knew what kind of economic reality they had been born into. Again, things kind of stayed flat. They didn't really rise or go down generally. So, so, so assuming there wasn't going to be anything wild take place in their lifetimes, such as a huge war or an overthrow of the Roman government or a pandemic or a huge famine, there's a good chance that Mary and Joseph's lives weren't going to be completely unlike their parents. They probably had a decent sense of what was coming. And they probably were pretty spot on with their like predictions of their lives as they were going to unfold. Because as couples, the, their culture it, it, it determined very much so kind of how your life played out. I mean, even the religion in which they were raised, it was not sort of the, the, the marketplace of ideas that, that we experience in, in the world today in which people sort of grow up and, then, and choose what religious associations that they want in the ancient Jewish world, it wasn't really like a choice. It was how faithful or not faithful, maybe, are you going to be to your Jewish faith, but you're still going to be a part of the Jewish faith and tradition. So from their ethnic tribe into which they were born, the economic system into which they were born, and the, and the, the space, their religion, the gender roles were very solidified in that culture. Their professions, there's a good chance that Joseph was going to do whatever his father did or whatever some other relative in the community could teach him to do. These were not all these existential decisions that we see or we feel like we make in the world today. These were things that were made the moment that these folks were born. I mean, their parents, Mary's parents and Joseph's parents, they even arranged their marriage. They didn't pick each other. They might have like, maybe they signed off on it in some unofficial fashion. I don't know. But they didn't pick each other. It was a culture of arranged marriages. 
So for those of you who absolutely despise choosing which restaurant to eat at on Friday night or to making a big life decision, you might have really enjoyed being born into first century Jewish culture because a lot of those decisions would not have been for you to make. Which is really important setup when you look at Mary and Joseph from the perspective and the questions that the everyday mystic brings to the text, especially as 21st century Americans post, well, trying to be post-pandemic and figuring out what life after that looks like and also asking what it looks like for us to embrace this ancient mystical, mystic path in our everyday lives. What do Mary and Joseph teach us? Because everything I just pointed out, the ancient readers of the Gospels, they would have already known. It would have been obvious. Ancient Jewish people who would have read these Gospels, even ancient Greek, Roman, etc., like they would have known so much of this was just the way that the world operated. But we read these texts and we don't see that. But what happens when you take two young people from this kind of a background, you begin a story where they are engaged, but they're not yet married, they're both still living in their parents' homes, when in the cover of the dark of night, something wildly unexpected happens. One of the, one of the problems with the way that we encounter the Christmas story is that we we really enjoy making it sort of surrounded in, in warmth and in good feelings of, of happiness and of joy. And, and I'm not deterring from any of that, but for us to read this story, to see Mary and Joseph, who were both alone in their homes with their parents when they received this startling vision from God to dispel the idea or to ignore the idea that there would have also been mixed with all of it feelings of horror and terror and fear. I mean, there's a reason that Gabriel tells both of them, don't, I, I'm, you're, I'm coming to you in peace. Don't be afraid. Because this message, friends, would have rightly freaked both of them out to their core. That's not even to mention the fact that Mary and Joseph are awoken in the middle of the night in some way by an angelic divine messenger. And we read this and we just assume it must have been like a normal thing that people had angels visiting them when they're sleeping in the ancient world. But that, it, was, it was not commonplace then either. Most people did not get a visit from Gabriel. And it, for many people in that culture, it sounded completely crazy. We miss the point when we make these kinds of assumptions. And part of the point is that it was super weird and crazy for two Jewish teenagers to be met by the same angel in a vision at night with the same message, right? With the same message. And when Mary later visits her relative Elizabeth, who we looked at last Sunday, was Zechariah the priest. We discover that the same angel that met Zechariah to tell him of John the Baptist's future birth 
Gabriel is the same angel that meets Joseph and Mary, and Mary probably put all of this together when she was visiting her relative. But the text described it as weird enough last Sunday for, for a temple priest to experience an angelic revelation. That was weird. I mean, they're in the, the temple. Where else? I mean, that's like, that would be like the place, right? That you would think that a priest, of all people, they, they would talk to an angel. But, but the way the story goes is that it's, Zechariah is completely freaked out of his mind. And I don't know about you, friends, but it would freak me out as well if... I had an encounter with an angelic being with, with a message from God. And I would probably try the next day to get a brain scan at Emory and see where the tumor was. But in the story, it's as if the next day, Joseph and Mary, who are probably both wondering if they're a little loopy and wondering what in the world that was, and then when they're like, I have to tell you something. And the other says, I have to tell you something. You want to go first? No, you can go first. And then they begin to tell a remarkably similar story one to another to the point where they're probably left more dumbfounded and awestricken than ever as Joseph admits to Mary what he saw and Mary admits to Joseph what she received and the stories match up. This couple, this young, engaged, to be married couple who thought their life was gonna be simple and predictable are met in the cover of night by a divine message, a message of hope, of salvation for a spiraling human race message of hope and of salvation, but that is delivered under the cover of night and is delivered in the dark. It's interesting, isn't it? That we as children, somewhere we, we learn, I don't know if it's, if it's something in our physiology from like our evolutionary you know, development or if it's something cultural, but that we learn at some, some point along the way that we're, we're, we ought to be afraid of the dark. It seems relatively universal. And, and if we think about it, if we really ask the question, like what, if, if you can remember back to when you were a kid or if you're, if you're a kid and you're watching this, like what is it about the dark that actually scares you? Like what is it? Think about it. What is it about the dark that actually scares you? You know, and I'm no psychologist, but I wonder if it's, not, if it's not the fact that the dark has this particular impact on our senses, on our ability, or it creates the inability of us to rely on one of our senses that we really depend on, our eyes, our vision. Darkness makes it so that we can't see what's possibly right over there, right? In the dark, sometimes our eyes play tricks on us and our imagination makes us think we're seeing things that we're not. As children, maybe we think we see a monster in the corner and then the light gets turned on and we can see that there was nothing there. But the dark, it creates a sense of the unknown. I return to this idea of epistemic agnosticism of what we don't know. 
as children, and probably if we're completely honest, some of us adults as well, we don't love being completely alone in pitch black darkness, especially if we don't have a device, a flashlight or a match that we can light or a candle, something to dispel the, the blanket of darkness that we're experiencing. If we literally don't have access to any way to create light, and we cannot see, that can be a scary experience. Why? Again, I think the answer's pretty obvious because we can't see what's out there. We can't see if we walk, if we're gonna trip on something and fall on our face. We can't see if someone's hiding. We don't know what's in the dark because we can't see it. The dark turns off our capacity to sense with our eyes which is why we're probably all at least a little bit afraid of literal dark, but I think probably as adults, we're all collectively, to, to, to varying degrees, afraid of epistemic darkness, if, if, I'm, if I'm not moving from preaching to meddling. I don't know about you, but I like to know. What's tomorrow? What's the forecast? What's the day after that? We like to know what's around the corner because then we can properly predict and prepare. And darkness, darkness equates with not knowing and not knowing makes us feel like we're not capable adults who are doing what we need to do in our lives and in the world because isn't that the job of the adults in the room, right? To know, to know, to plan, to predict, to prepare. And not knowing can be fear-inducing. It's scary. And I think 2020, for many of us, to, to varying degrees, has been an exercise in us being forced to learn to walk with a little less light, with a little less knowledge, with a little less vision out in front of us. And... Let's be honest, the vision that was received by Mary and Joseph by the angel Gabriel, yes, it might have been good news, like the message may have been good, but the direct and immediate implications of that message on Mary and Joseph's life, to call that good news, might be a stretch. Because what Gabriel just delivered to them, this message of good news, of the Christ coming into our world through their lives, through Mary's body. It took both of them from a place where they were relatively comfortable in knowing the trajectory of their life. Things were relatively set in stone. They could see where they were going, where they were heading, what their life was probably going to turn out as and like. And all of that, all of that overnight gets ripped from them. And they are left going what's up and what is down. Let's be honest, Joseph's parents, it's very likely that they disowned him, asked him to leave the family when he decided to stay with Mary, even though Mary was with child and not by, Mos not by Joseph. And let's, let's not paint this too nicely. It's very possible that Mary's parents did the same with her when she came up pregnant before the wedding, regardless of how that came to be. 
See, friends, it's entirely possible that Mary and Joseph's adherence to this revealed plan of God for their lives had immediate, immediate consequences that would have created a sense of shame, could have very easily created rejection and immediate economic consequences, it would have shattered their sense of their future, what was next, what was coming. And it would have immediately required the two of them to sort of lean into each other and have this sense of a shared, ruthless faith, not unlike Moses and the liberated Hebrews in the wilderness, taking it a day at a time, Mary and Joseph relying on Yahweh, their God, to show them how is this all going to work out, God? Because we're in, but in is coming at quite a high cost. Mary and Joseph, they would have had to immediately lean into the provision of their God, the God who was responsible for starting this whole mess of good news. Mary and Joseph, friends, in essence, they... They had to learn to get comfortable in and with the dark, the night, the inability to see beyond. Do you think that when Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem that like, they knew ahead of time that there wasn't going to be any place for the pregnant lady to stay? Was that like a conversation that they were having the whole way? You know, Mary, you're going real slow and all the rooms are going to be taken. I doubt it. There's so much that they would have had to have done together, leaning into one another and leaning into God. And not to mention that radical trust that, that Mary would have had to have had in Joseph and Joseph would have had to have had in her as they both received their own separate uh, iterations of God's message. They, Mary had to trust that Joseph wasn't going to cut and run. Joseph had to trust that Mary was telling the truth. They had to trust that they were going to be faithful to one another and they were going to do this work that God had called them as a team into together because they needed each other. And by accepting this role in God's plan, both of them, in a way that's radical, they were giving up the architecture, the plans, the projection of what their lives, what they thought it was going to be. And now pretty much they had one another. They had God. It sounds like maybe they had Zechariah and Elizabeth. But they had to learn to walk together in the dark. I'm not sure when the nightlight was invented. Maybe one of you out there will research that and let me know. Probably my son. But I hope that whoever invented it got the idea quickly patented because I'm sure that they made a lot of money because we humans, we like our nightlights. My kids, they really like some light on when they're going to sleep and throughout the night. They don't like it to be pitch black. And we get this. We understand that sight is knowledge and knowledge is power and power gives us the capacity for self-dependence and self-reliance and the ability to, to take care of and look out for ourselves and those who depend on us and that we are responsible for. So of course we don't like the dark because the dark makes us feel less powerful. But I think 
what Mary and Joseph teach us today in the 21st century as people aspiring to be everyday mystics is that what do we perceive to be in the dark? Who, who does the darkness belong to? Is darkness scary? Is darkness mystery? For Mary and Joseph, I think that they came to understand and to believe and to encounter that God was present with them in the dark. And that even though they couldn't see, they learned to sense and to rely on and to experience the presence of Yahweh, the divine one with them in this sort of day by day by day kind of existence. What does it mean if God doesn't always choose to visit us in the illumined light of day, but, but, but God chooses to meet us in the dark of night? God chooses to reveal something to us about God's self in the dark. In the book of Genesis, God's not afraid of dark. Darkness isn't called bad. Darkness is simply rightly ordered with the, with the day, with light. But there's this balance and this rhythm to darkness and to light. And creation has a balance and a rhythm between these two realities. And sometimes we know God through what we don't know about God. By who we say God is not. That God is not hate. God is not fear. God is not judgment. Sometimes we know God even in darkness. And sometimes we trust that God has the capacity to see in the dark even when we don't. And that even though we might be scared, the divine is not afraid. And some of you have had the experiencing of comforting a child when they're terrified of the dark. And over time, as you embrace them, they slowly but surely take your sense of peace and okayness and it works its way into their being and you feel them relax. I wonder if as everyday mystics, we're called to befriend the night as Mary and Joseph do to not always find God in, in our knowledge or a feeling of supremacy because we know X, Y, or Z, but sometimes in admitting the mystery and admitting what we don't know and coming up against the edge of our knowledge and instead accepting the embrace of the creator, even when we can't see. Sometimes it's not about more knowledge, more words, even more thought, but sometimes it's about being together with the creator of our being and accepting that presence, even when our minds are playing all kinds of tricks and dances and darting here and there, accepting that the warm embrace of the divine is right here, right, right here, right now with us. It's been a crazy year, and we don't know, but... God is with us even when we can't see God. The presence of the divine is, is, is nearer than we can even fathom. So may we live as that is true in our lives this day and the next. Amen.
Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message, and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.